Hi, I'm John Stevens. This is Matt Russell. And this is Pod Have Mercy. This is Pod Have Mercy. Well, today uh, we are we are blessed to have Michael Sheretti and Peter Johns. And for those who are familiar with Chapwood, you're going to know about the Center for Christian Spirituality, which was formed, wow, Peter, what, 17, 18 years ago? Maybe 19. Yes. 19 years 19. ago when Jerry Weber came uh, to Chapelwood. We've had Jerry on the podcast. And the Center for Christian Spirituality, uh, why don't you guys tell folks, Michael Shreddy is our pastor in our contemplative community and the director there, and Peter Johns is also uh, very tied into all that, not only with the worship and the music and the composing, but also the teaching and the formation. And why don't you guys just let people know what is the Center for Christian Spirituality first, and then we'll kind of go with today. Because I think, you know, there's so much going on in the world with the pandemic and economic issues and race that I thought today to talk about mental and psychological and spiritual well-being would be a really great topic of need. Mm-hmm. So let's start with Center for Christian Spirituality. Yeah. Well, the, the Center for Christian Spirituality um, is a community of people who we're all seeking some kind of deepening connection with God um, that makes a difference in who we are with God and with ourselves and with other people and with all of creation. And so we we help guide people into what's been called the contemplative dimension of Christianity or the inner dimension of Christianity, um, transformation from the inside out, so to speak. And so, um, so yeah, this is a very timely topic for us in these times that we find ourselves in and how can we be a uh, more centered presence um, for ourselves, but for the people that are around us. Yeah, and so the way we do that, probably the way most people encounter the center for the first time is through our Sunday morning contemplative worship service, which features a lot of silence, a lot of space. There's never any sermon. There might be some brief meditation and some directed questions for reflection. So we offer that, and that becomes a a real doorway into the center for various people. And then we also do various different small groups, study groups, those kinds of things as well, geared around different topics. So that's really the two main areas that we're involved in. I've always found it uh, fascinating in the ways that I intersect with it, whether it's a silent day retreat at uh, at Martell, Villa Mattel, or um, you know, a centering prayer, even at the Anchor House, which is next door, where people can come and just learn some prayer practices, ancient prayer practices, and contemplative or spiritual practices that maybe dive in beyond what people are are used to. It's always, you know, I know enough about contemplative spirituality to be dangerous. <laughs> you know, I, I went on a kick for a while where it was very important for me in a developmental aspect for about 10 years and I still revisit it when I am kind of lost and need Mm -hmm. to stop Mm -hmm. and be grounded Mm -hmm. Uh, whether that's whether it's the Desert Fathers or Merton or 
you know, Roar or any of these Keating mm-hmm. that I have to kind of find some reconnection with the, my center. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, sometimes the tyranny, the urgent propels us. And that's why I think where we find ourselves mm-hmm. now mm-hmm. is, you know, Covey talks about we get so driven by the urgent that we lose track of what's important. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that is, um, I want to talk about the traumas and the things that are going on. But I'm also very concerned, and I'd love your, your thought on this. I'm catching you off guard, I know. But, you know, I have this assumption that the church is becoming the enemy of the Christian. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is that when we proclaim the message of Jesus Christ, that is going to confront in profound ways our personal preferences, our partisan ideologies, our, our worldviews, our mm-hmm. culture. And we're going to assume that the church has taken sides in our game because, you know, we, we take sides. Mm-hmm. So we're like, oh, the church has taken sides. Well, I guess I can't go to this church anymore because they've taken a side. Mm-hmm. And my whole thing is I just want to take Jesus' side, right? That's the side I want to take. And it will confront both sides. But mm-hmm. I, I wonder, is that a, you know, that, that mentality of the culture that we're in where the church is now becoming an enemy. It's, I don't know if I would call it immaturity or a lack of understanding or a lack of biblical literacy or spiritual health mm-hmm. or what. I'm just throwing this out there to yeah. y'all. Well, um, I mean, what, what your thoughts are on that? My mind immediately is where we get the word contemplative from is actually a Greek word, the Greek word theoria, which is about, it's a way of seeing. It's a way of beholding. We get the word theory from it, and we think theory is very intellectual. But mm. for, for theoria, it's a more of like kind of a seeing with the eye of the heart. And for me, when we talk about, you know, what was Jesus's side, it, for him, it was a way of seeing the world and seeing how other people are embedded in this beautiful but wounded creation. So... What's important, you know, for us, I think, at the center is how do we help people see contemplatively, which is to see truly, Mm. it's to see from a more, to see with more of ourselves. And I think that's part of what happens with the tyranny of the urgent, that it's almost like we shrink somewhere in ourselves and we maybe get into kind of self-preservation kinds of activities or concerns, which are important, but the, the danger is that we, be, we go into a smaller part of ourselves um, and instead of opening ourselves up more and to see, well, what, what is in front of me right now? And it's not just the pandemic. It's not just whatever, but there's so much more that's going on in this reality right now, but we get so, we get into a small part of ourselves. Luther called it, we get curled up within ourselves, Mm. but we're meant to like, we're meant to like wear our insides out, so to speak, and to live from the heart. And that's a kind of seeing that takes, well, it takes practice. It takes practices. And, um, and so I, I think we're at a, a very interesting moment where in the midst of the chaos, um, in the midst of the darkness, there is an opportunity to wake up for those who feel that stir. Um, and that's my hope that, you know, we can be the center and, and other people who are trying to do the same kind of work that how can we see with more of ourselves 
and how can we see um, the world as really like as iconic, you know? How can we see um, this world as an icon of the divine, window of the divine? And when we begin to see from that place, things begin to look differently (laughs) Uh, and how we behave, how we relate to you as an icon and not an object um, or someone in my so way. So explain, though, explain icon versus object. I don't know that most people would know. I don't know that I fully know. I know what an icon is. But how would you, in layman's terms, flesh that out for people who are listening? For me, an icon, especially the you know the traditional religious painted icons, they're a window to deeper reflection on self and of God. And so if I view you and Michael as icons, then you're an invitation for me to encounter God afresh. You're a unique expression of who God is, and I'm invited to encounter God through you, through mm-hmm. Michael. Mm-hmm. And through anything yeah. in creation. I mean, to see... It has a unique face of the divine. Whereas object is... It's opaque. It's just solid. It's okay. You're just a material object, not transparent. One-dimensional. One-dimensional, yeah. That, that would yeah. be another way of talking about it. It's a Easily way of, defined, yeah. easily, easily defined categories, mm-hmm. like yeah. conservative, liberal, yes. Republican, Democrat, that's this, an, that. That's becoming... That's, and... and the way that some people talk about it in the tradition is, is to use, we were talking about alchemy <laughs> earlier before yes. John got here, but transmuting idols into icons. Yeah. Hmm. And an object becomes an, can become an idol, whether it's your political hmm. affiliation or your church oh, yeah. or a particular practice. Um, even coming to church can become an idol. Yeah, amen. Hmm. Uh, so I get, I get idolatry big time. Uh, the regathering of having church on campus in the sanctuary is, I get uh, a cultural affinity definition of how mm-hmm. we find ourselves, but also I think an idol because we think that's what church is. Mm-hmm. And that's not what church is. No. I mean, I think about what, what Chapelwood has been doing over the last three months, mm-hmm. you know, or however long that we've not been meeting on Sunday mornings. And in some ways, we are as, as engaged, if not more engaged in the world than we've ever been because the need is greater. Mm-hmm. And so the church is not closed. Building mm-hmm. may be closed. Church yeah. is not closed. But man, because we're not meeting on Sunday morning, some people think church is just not happening. Yeah. And that's just, you know, sometimes I wonder, I've just failed as a pastor. <laughs> no, that's not <laughs> Just an <it>. abject <laughs> failure for 30 years <laughs> that, you know, that, you know, people just... See, the church is being defined as I got to be there in that pew mm-hmm. on Sunday morning. That's, that's object, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, very yeah. much object. So it's interesting. For me, I grew up in a very evangelical conservative church. And so we used a lot of the language. In South Georgia, I can tell by your yes. language you come yes. from. No, a so. little bit further east than that. <laughs> um, but we would use the language of inviting Jesus into your heart when you became a Christian. And yet, after that, this emotional experience, then faith became intellectual. It was right belief, a series of precepts you were supposed to take on. 
And for me, during this time of social distance and quarantining, I've had to go right back to, I don't need to go to the sanctuary. I need to realize I am a sanctuary, that Jesus is right here inside, within, and I need to find ways to, you know, go to my inner room and pray that is not dependent on being in a specific building. Yeah, we talked about it in one of our worship services as Jesus in the post-resurrection time leading up to, to Pentecost. He's, he's teaching them, I'm only with you a little bit longer. Um, and it's almost like he, he was working with them as if they had training wheels, so to speak, mm-hmm. and they were about to come off. Or the other image we used is um, that... Um, they've been relying on the scaffolding of a building, but when the building is built, you no longer need the scaffolding. And they were coming to a point once he left after Ascension before Pentecost that they needed to be the building and not rely on the scaffolding anymore. And so I I think about that in the midst of this. One thing that we told our community at the very beginning when we were having to not meet in person was um, I felt like we were equipped for this moment that as a contemplative community, we were equipped for, we, we'd been talking about practices and going into the interior room and that you are a temple body and, and it goes wherever you go and we're in the temple of creation. And so we're equipped for this. And so how can we live into that and live from that kind of perspective and view of ourselves and our world? Well, one of the things we, um, I, I just, I had some notes I wanted to share with you. I've, I've been just reading about, this has been of concern to me because we've been thinking about pandemic, mm. all right? Uh, now, since really early to mid-March, a lot of people have been locked down. A lot of people still are, even though a lot of things are opening up. I've had a lot of emails now that we start talking about regathering of a lot of our older members that said, hey, I'm glad you're regathering, but I, I'm not coming. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that they will for a long time. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of grief and anguish and struggle and concern. Then you have the economic impact. A lot of people have lost their jobs or lost wealth or struggled with um, all sorts of things, whether it's family members. And then you get the killing of George Floyd, of course, Ahmaud Arbery, uh, Breonna Taylor. I mean, it's just all these things we've talked about. And it just, the protests for two weeks solid um, in this racial uprising of, of trying to shine a light on things in our country. Mm-hmm. And I think about um, a couple of things that I've read. One is, is trauma. This is why we have this big TV up here for you. Mm-hmm. And I, I, just a couple of notes. It's like trauma is often associated with something overtly violent, such as a car accident or a shooting. But this Dutch philosopher Aiden describes a situation as traumatic when it violates familiar expectations about someone's life and world, sending them into a state of extreme confusion and uncertainty. That sounds like exactly what so many people are dealing with. So when you think of trauma, you always think of like this really horrific, horrible thing. But if you just define it as violating the familiar expectations about your life and your world, then wouldn't you think that, like most all of us are dealing with significant amounts of trauma? 
The other thing I thought was interesting is this concept, and I mentioned this this morning, I think you all were there, about moral injury. Mm-hmm. And moral injury, um, it's a term from the military, occurs when a person does something that goes against their deeply held moral beliefs. Now, this would be most obvious in the hospitals in New York where a doctor had to one ventilator and two patients. Mm-hmm. And you have to make a decision who gets the ventilator. That causes moral injury because it goes against some moral teaching or, or, or uh, something against you that goes against your deeply held moral beliefs. I, I think though, that around this whole issue of race, I hear good Christian people saying things that they're parroting or echoing off certain talking points or news channels that they'll say, what happened to George Floyd was horrible, or what happened in this situation was horrible, but look at all this bad stuff. Mm-hmm. And it makes me think, okay, there's a reason we all do that, but deep, deep down, maybe even at a subconscious level, is there some disconnect, some violation of what we know to be moral and right? We know we should say, I know it's wrong what happened to George Floyd, not with a but, but with a period, and just sit there for a while. Yeah. And we don't do that. We move on quickly in a way to deflect what we, the hard work we really need to do. And so I thought it would be good to hear from you guys. I mean, one of the things that strikes me is that I think we as Christians really need to do some soul work, some digging, some sitting in the dust with sackcloth and ashes, some lamenting, some prayer. It's one of the reasons why it's been very important for me not to put out these continual statements about things, but just to invite people on a journey of, mm-hmm. of listening and reflection and reading and discovery about just everything. I'm just curious about what it relates to trauma or moral injury or mm-hmm. spiritual listening or growth. You guys have shared a little bit, I think, earlier today about some of this. What are your words of encouragement for people as they're dealing with all of these things? Well, one thing that I'm struck by that definition of trauma, um, I mean, taking his definition of trauma, you can almost see that as an opportunity to transform because it's upsetting your expectations of how you think the world works or should work, which is not reality, which is not a correct seeing of the world. To kind of go back to what Jesus was doing, Jesus was completely upsetting people's expectations left and right of how the world should work. So in that sense, and this is the difficult piece, but throughout the spiritual traditions, there's a teaching of the dark night, of the darkness, of the black light, of, of doing the deep soul work that is upsetting and dismantling of the ego, um, of the lower self, that is just a part of the journey. And at least me, you know, growing up, that, that wasn't as much communicated to me. It was much more of, you know, develop this personal relationship with Christ, and that might involve baptism and some other different things. But it really, and then, you know, you get your place into heaven, you know. And, but it wasn't as much that there is this ongoing work of sanctification, to use the Wesleyan term or the Pauline term, uh, 
ongoing transformation that is going to take you through darkness. It's going to be uncomfortable. The gospel passage that Tammy read this morning about um, Jesus said he, he comes to bring a sword. You know, what's all that about? You know, so we kind of gloss over those more difficult passages. But I, I, I guess I see this in the light of that, that this is an opportunity for people to kind of wake up out of how they thought the world worked for them and to maybe to begin to see, have something open up inside of us, all of us, that, wait, this is an opportunity to live into a, a different kind of world to see a different kind of world, to maybe to co-create a different kind of world. Um, I mean, that I at least would say would be more in keeping with the theoria or the vision mm. of Christ. There is a game that I've often seen at carnivals and at the seafront called Whack-A-Mole. You've seen it where the moles oh. pop up and you have the big mallet mm. and you hit them over the head. And it feels a lot of my life I've played a kind of spiritual Whack-A-Mole that things will pop up and, um, you know, this struggle, this problem, this sin, and I'll start hitting it over the head with his Bible reading, his prayer, his small group, his accountability, and they keep popping up faster and faster, and I just keep hitting them, and I eventually fail, I have a breakdown, I cry at an altar, and then I start playing the game again. Mm. And it feels like with as an opportunity, instead of playing the game, to actually open up the cabinet and look at the mechanics that are going on underneath that are mm. causing these things to arise in my life. To use another image, it's like there's so many things that I thought were problems that now I see are, are more like the warning light on the dashboard of my car. It's And I'm treating the warning light mm. without getting down and doing the deeper work of treating the problem underneath. And that's what the gift that contemplative spirituality has been for me. Hmm. What would you? What What are some specifics? So let's look at it from from different people intersecting it in different ways. You have people who are brand new; they have no idea what contemplative spirituality hmm. is. They come to church. Um, they understand prayer as them maybe doing most of the talking and mm -hmm. not much of the listening. I'm I'm going off just my own perspective of yeah. my my young spirituality, the petition prayer where. My prayers are only about what I got to say to God. Mm -hmm. What do you What do you say to people who are saying, "Okay, I get the trauma, I get the the uh, the moral the moral injury. I'm there with all of you on all this stuff. What specifically could I do to begin to examine mm -hmm. what's working the whack a mole?" Mm -hmm. yeah. One simple practice that we teach a lot at the center is an ancient prayer practice called the examine, and I do this just about every night when I'm laying in bed. Um, and I ask myself two questions. What has given me life today? And what has just sucked the life out of me? And it's a way of replaying the day and offering all that to God. But also it helps me begin to see at a deeper level the way that God has wired me and then when I go about the day, I find myself saying, oh, this is one of those things I'm going to be grateful for this evening. Mm. And so it changes my perspective to the events that come to me. And it helps me try and see what is the unique way God has created me to live life to the full. And how can I step more 
into that design for my life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So a lot of times, you know, we'll talk about at the center contemplative wisdom and contemplative practices. You know, so um, Peter's just described one of the classic contemplative practices in the contemplative Christian tradition. The, the, the other piece of that is the contemplative wisdom, which is really kind of a contemplative seeing or maybe a kind of a roadmap, you know, of kind of what this vision could look like. So one, one piece of contemplative wisdom that's been helpful to me is to think about well, what does contemplative really mean? And at, at its most root, the root word of contemplative is temple. And so it helps me to begin to see, well, to be contemplative is to take seriously the teaching that Peter alluded yeah. to earlier from Paul, that you are a temple of spirit. And whether it's the Jewish tradition or other ancient temples, they had this kind of threefold aspect of the temple. Um, so in the, in the Jewish temple, you had the inner court, then you had the holy place, then you had the holy of holies, the mm -hmm. most central inner um, secret chamber, inner chamber that Jesus talked about. So a contemplative wisdom perspective would be, well, what are the kind of practices that would kind of cor correlate with those parts of the temple? So um, part of Paul's teaching was also that we're um, body, soul, spirit. And so very early on, people began to correlate. Well, the body is like that first entrance into the temple. So there's things of purification, you know, there's an altar of sacrifice, there's a laver of water, you know, where they wash. So what are the things I can do to get in my body that help put myself in a position of openness and receptivity to God? It's like I'm making this first reorientation from being just stuck in the urgent mm -hmm. and what's just immediate right here which is often just in our head, if we're honest yeah. with ourselves. It's like this monkey mind or this wheel that's going on in our head. So the first thing is we just got to get into our body. Um, and so in our contemplative worship services, a lot of times we begin with some kind of body sensing practice. You know, um, get grounded in your body, sense your hand, maybe put your hands in an open um, receptive position with your palms up or since your since your feet on the ground and it's very simple kinds of things but so often we're not in our body we're just in our mind so we're not using all of ourselves yeah. so we teach various kind of body sensing body awareness practices um, and then you continue to kind of follow that through so what are the kind of soul practices that we can participate in um, individually or together. So in the Jewish temple, you had the menorah, the light, or the table of the God's presence. And so what are the things that you chew on or nourish you um, that give you light? Um, so like Lexio Divina, another ancient practice of just meditating on a short piece of scripture and maybe allowing that to be a, an internal commentary instead of the other toxic internal commentaries we can have running through our minds. But a breath prayer would be uh, something that would be relevant here. Yeah. You know, the Lord is my shepherd, um, I shall not want. Just patterning that with your breath. And um, then the final one is this kind of move into the Holy of Holies, which was a secret, dark place that one had to move through a veil, um, which in that tradition symbolized creation. So it's a way of kind of letting go of everything and just being completely open 
and receptive, letting go of the thoughts mm. and not being attached and letting go of the, the feelings because ultimately we're much more mm. than whatever I am obsessing about right now. That's a part of me and it's important to feel it, but to also have some kind of interior freedom within ourselves to let it go and to let it pass through because we're more than that. Uh, this this uh, curve is interesting. Mm. This was a graph that was shared at a, a call we were on last week with Houston Methodist. And I found it fascinating because, you know, we talk about flattening the curve, right, all the time. And if you look at it, you talk about the, you know, the, the axis that goes, what's it, the x-axis that goes up and the y-axis that yeah. goes across? X-axis across the bottom, y-axis Across y and the y goes vertical. up. Thank you very much. Um, so the y-axis up is the health footprint of the pandemic and the x is the time as it relates. And you can see mm-hmm. that first sort of purple is that first wave. That's just immediate mortality of COVID-19. And you can see how it spikes. We saw this in March. It kind of goes down, although now ours is upticking back up a little bit. The second wave is the impact of resource restriction on urgent non-COVID. We see this in Houston, for example, that in Montgomery County in the month of, I can't remember if it was April or May, you had 40% increase in cardiac arrest deaths outside of the hospital. What that means is that people are not going to the hospital. So you have a curve and a decrease of the impact of the resource restriction on urgent non-COVID. Then you have chronic conditions, impact of uh, interrupted care on chronic conditions. You look at the increase in nursing homes, in rehab centers, and all these sorts of things. So you can manage all those curves, but I found fascinating the red curve, the fourth wave they talked about, that some of the stuff I was quoting to you earlier is that we are facing now a huge psychic uh, mental illness, economic injury, burnout, stress. There's a huge mental uh, trauma that we are going to be confronted with. We already are now. Suicides are up. Abuse is up. Addictions is up. I mean, all of these things are up, 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 up. We have not flattened that curve. Mm -hmm. And when we start talking about the impact of a pandemic... We forget that. And to me, the mental, psychic, uh, stress, that's, that's so related to our spiritual well-being. Mm-hmm. Don't you think? Yeah. Or am I just out of, out of no. line here? And, and I think that somehow, Christians especially, I know I've been, I mean, this is, we're all in a strange place. Mm-hmm. We don't know how to make sense of all this stuff. And I'm looking for resources and answers of how to do it. And sometimes you have to be grounded in some old practices uh, once again. Gone back and now I'm reading the Desert Fathers. Started reading some old Merton again. So there's something about it that just brings me kind of, it turns me inward more. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. It does. Yeah. Is that a contemplative thing? It is. Yeah. But did I sound smart? You did. <laughs> It just, it's, a, it's a turning inward that turns you outward, though. I mean, it's, it's a turning inward that begins to see like, almost like the, the inner aspects of all the other people and things around you. It's like when, that's, that's the thing about contemplative just isn't being introverted, but it's, it's, it's going inward so that then I can be, have a kind of a sympathetic relationship yeah. with the other people and things around me. I begin to relate to others in a different kind of way than if I'm just always stuck up here in the head. And these, these things that are happening right now are, 
are opportunities, I mean, I think, my perspective, of opening up, of breaking open the heart, of, of opening the soul, um, for us to begin to live in a way that's more natural. I mean, some of the things that we're experiencing right now are because we've been living a way that isn't, isn't healthy, is it we natural? Yeah, we weren't created that way. And, and so, um, as I've been thinking about, and my family's been thinking about, you know, what what are we learning from this time? What what do we want to take with us that we've learned? What do we want to discard? What do we want to keep? And I think that's part of the discernment process, at least that I'm going through right now, is how what what can I learn, and how can I help other people begin to reflect on on this time and how it can be transformative um, for us. One of the challenges is that often we view other people as mirrors and we only see in them what we're projecting onto them, what we're reflecting back. And I know you've used the phrase quite often that we need to always test our assumptions Mm -hmm. when we interact Mm -hmm. with other people. And this during this time it's a challenge for me to really i've got to go inside and do inner work to test some of the assumptions that i put on other human beings Mm -hmm. and the way that i'm projecting faulty lessons um on other people instead of seeing the full divinity that they're Mm -hmm. created in the image Mm -hmm. of in each person and that's that's exhausting inner work, and at the same time, it has an effect in my outer world, in my relationships with other people. So, what are you guys doing? What are you guys doing? So, we're we're teleworking a lot. I know we're doing a lot of work. You guys are still online at the center mm-hmm. and contemplative. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're going to be doing some regathering. Although I think it's going to be small groups. Y'all going to wait a little longer for the contemplative service. Mm-hmm. What are you doing to keep yourself sane at home? Mm. <laughs> Well, I mean, personally, I've, um, you know, I, I take seriously the whole temple body kind of image, you know, and so part of my own discipline is exercise, nutrition kind of piece. And so um, I, I do a lot of exercise <laughs> uh, and I find that life giving because it gets me in my body and um, and it feels like it's, um, uh, you know, strengthening you know, physically, as well as, you know, my own soul, you know, you just kind of feel better when you, you know, went for a run or did something. So, um, that and being, uh, and I think this is true. A lot of people are just being out in nature more. Mm. Um, I've been out more in, in nature since all this has happened, um, and felt the drive to go out more. And that's been life giving as well. Um, so those are two things for me that, I, that have been important is, is regular exercise and regularly getting out into the larger world hmm. and trying to, trying to have a kind of a communion almost with the larger world, with nature. Um, nature's still going on. You know, nature's still beautiful, and, and I can still some things we talked about before. Some things are amazingly uh, refreshed, mm-hmm. like they talked about in Venice, where they had jellyfish and porpoises and fish and mm. you could actually see in the water and mm. you know all these these places that have been uh, yeah. where people have been cleared out for a, a period of time you've seen this renewal mm-hmm. of nature yeah. how about you what are you keeping busy um, 
couple of things for me. Um, I'm always trying to be creative and mm. some of that is actually out of my desire. It's my way of processing information. Um, and so as we've been planning worship services, Michael will often bring these very bizarre mystical texts that we're <laughs> discussing. And um, I sit down and I try and write and encapsulate it in a way that's meaningful for me. So it's been interesting. You mean with music? Yes, yeah. my level of music writing has actually increased mm. during quarantine rather mm -hmm. than decreased, partly because it's it's one way that I cope with new information. It's one way to, to fill my time um, and there's less distraction for me at the house. Yeah. Um, the other thing I do quite frequently, usually actually on my days off, is I will try and organize my day somewhat similar to traditional monasteries. And so if I've got a long list of cleaning and other projects around the house to do, typically I will set a timer for about 50 minutes. And then once that's done, I'll stop. The timer goes off and I'll do about 10 minutes of centering prayer. Then I'll just pick back up and carry on mopping the kitchen floor or whatever it is. And the rule for me is I must stop when the timer goes off, even if I'm just halfway through washing a plate. Um, it helps break down the tyranny of the urgent that you mm. talk about. Mm. And it also then, when I move from prayer back into the task, I carry that attitude with me. And so washing dishes mopping the floor, dusting, takes on a different, more spiritual meaning for me when I'm doing it because of the breaks with the prayer time. So this is the Petrine rule of life. Yeah. It's a rule of life. <laughs> yeah. Peter John's rule of life. Yeah. Yep. The Petrine Johannine rule of life. <laughs> Set a timer. Yeah, you do cook a lot and well, your oven uh, has been down that, and you got it fixed. What today? That was really interesting because I planned... You know, I'm not going out, I'm not seeing that many people. So I'd planned a weekend of baking and giving away food because I'm, I'm down about six pounds so far. I'm working on it. Not me, uh, dude. Um, yeah. And so then when I turned my oven on Thursday night, it just kept on getting hotter and hotter and hotter and hotter and had to shut it off at the mains. And I tried to get a repairman in on Friday and just couldn't get one in. And I was in the foulest of moods all weekend. Because your oven didn't work. Because my oven didn't work. Because I'd planned my coping mechanism for filling time this weekend. And because of everything that's going on with the pandemic, my emotions are right on the surface anyway. And so my emotional response to that oven was way out of proportion <laughs> to what it should have been. <coughs> and okay. I had to do some serious kind of reflecting. Everybody's been guilty of overreacting yeah. to a lot of small things yeah. lately. Yeah. What's been, your, what's, been the, what's been your favorite thing you've baked recently? Baked recently? Um, so because we do... We're doing our service live on a Sunday morning. We don't pre-record. So I've been baking for the team on a Sunday morning um, just to thank all the tech crew for coming in and being there with us. And so mm. I made some incredibly moist brownies the other week. Mm. But 
I put a thin layer of chocolate Rice Krispie treat on top of the brownie. So you got this wonderful, rich crunch along with then the, the deep, moist yeah. chocolatiness of the brownie. And it was just so We good. did offer oh, him yeah. coffee, right? Shipping channel coffee. <laughs> he didn't I bring us a brownie? I don't drink coffee. <laughs> you drink tea, though. You got to drink oh, of tea. Of course, yeah. yes. Oh, okay, I was yeah. going to say. Wow, now I need a brownie <laughs> with the crispity, crunchity. Oh, yeah. Crunchity, uh, crispity, crunchity. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, we missed Matt Russell this week. He is with his uh, beautiful bride. They're celebrating their 25th wedding anniversary. So they decided to just kind of get off the grid for a couple of days, which is good mm. for him. I'm John Stevens. I'm Michael Shreddy, Jr. Uh, and I'm Peter Johns. Junior. I love how you said junior. You know. I've got to do you're that. The only, you're the only, you're the only Michael Shreddy here. You know what happened? Now, if there was Michael Shreddy Sr. was yeah. here, that, then Michael Shreddy Jr., like, that would make I've sense. Been, it, it's been ingrained in me, like, all my life that, remember, you are a junior. You, you should leave that junior. in, because that's gold. Yeah. I think you need to do some inner contemplative work right now, <laughs> Junior. <laughs> and this is Pod Have Mercy.